Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, paleontologists can see the fossils for the trees in a remarkable 350-million-year-old find. We had a branch exposed, and then parts of the trunk were exposed, and then we realized there's more. <laughs> there's this massive fossil, basically, and this, this massive tree. And sharks are feeling the bite of human over-exploitation, and our efforts to protect them are failing. That's a sinking feeling, right? Because we all know how threatened sharks are, so we have to act now, and we thought we had acted. Plus, primetime programming for our canine companions, lions get caught in a food web, and exploring when and how Stone Age people lived in Europe. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Just when sharks thought it was safe to stay in the water. As we've reported before, global shark populations have dropped dramatically in the past 50 years. Shark numbers are down over 70% with an average of 100 million of these often long-lived and slow-reproducing animals being killed each year. The decline is largely due to fishing. Most notorious is the practice called shark finning, where a shark's fins are cut off for food and the rest of the dying animal is tossed back into the water. In recent years, governments around the world have stepped in, enacting numerous regulatory changes and putting forward legislation designed to protect sharks. Over 100 nations, including Canada, have, for example, banned shark finning. But the big question is, are all these regulations working? A study published in the journal Science has some bad news about that. The report, led by marine biologist Boris Worm, shows that despite all of our efforts, shark mortality is still rising. Dr. Worm is a professor in marine conservation at Dalhousie University. Hello and welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Great to be here. Thank you, Bob. What are the numbers that you found for shark mortality since all these regulations to protect them were established? Right. So this was an enormous three-year data crunching exercise, basically bringing together all the relevant data for the mortality of sharks coming out at 76 million sharks in 2011, rising to 80 million sharks in 2018. Um, Now, that's only the sharks we can identify by species. If you look at all sharks, the number is closer to 100 million. But the concerning thing here is that it's not falling and maybe even slightly increasing over time, despite all those regulations that you cited. What was your reaction when you saw the fact that the numbers are actually increasing? Oh, well, it's a sinking feeling, right? Because we all know how threatened sharks are. One in three species, at least, is endangered. Several species are critically endangered with extinction in the immediate future. So we have to act now. And we thought we had acted. And, you know, to be sure, we have acted. We have done a lot of things that have helped sharks. And we don't know how bad these numbers would be if we hadn't done anything. But the 
problem here that we identified is that most countries, not all of them, but most of them focused largely or in many cases exclusively on banning the egregious practice of shark finning. And while that's the right thing to do and important, it doesn't address mortality directly because fishers still have the opportunity to land the whole shark and um, then sell not just the fins, but other body parts as well. And so in some sense, the regulation has backfired in um, increasing the value of the shark in some ways. But again, we want to outlaw this practice. It's, it's not a good thing to do, but we need to go some additional steps. Well, how did you go about investigating the overall picture of shark mortality? I get dizzy when I think about the amount of effort that went into this study. It's the most comprehensive study ever into the issue of shark mortality, all species, all countries, all fisheries. So we started with international fisheries and um, we collated all the publicly available data for them, checked them, found lots of holes, filled in those holes with machine learning models. We looked at coastal areas, which are much harder because a lot of coastal fisheries are very small scale and not well recorded. And we worked with a team at UBC who had spent over 15 years reconstructing coastal catches for every country in the world. Then we collected all regulatory data for all countries in the world with regard to sharks. And then finally, we interviewed 22 experts on six continents to sort of ground truth our numbers and look for some of the mechanisms and solutions that people saw on the ground that would work in actually saving sharks, because there are some places that are getting better, not worse. And we wanted to build on those successes as well. Now, you mentioned that the anti-finning regulations backfired. So is that because the fishers change from just taking the fin of the shark to taking the whole animal for meat? Yeah, so they were um, allowed to land the whole shark and um, then that incentivizes using the whole shark. And that's a good thing, to be sure. But again, it does not address mortality. So so these these sharks then are the, that are being caught, they're being targeted. Like it's, this isn't a case of bycatch. The main problem in this country and in many countries around the world is in fact bycatch and bycatch mortality. But then when those sharks are, are being retained, they're la being landed as a whole and sold as a whole. And so there's a market not just for the fin, but for other shark products as well. And so the problem becomes a little wider in terms of market measures because uh, shark meat is consumed in many countries, uh, whereas the fins are only consumed in a few countries. Mm -hmm. So in the end, people are eating more shark than before these regulations went into place, just because the market is larger. Exactly. That, that's the evidence we're seeing. And we're seeing a rise, particularly in the meat market in a number of countries. Brazil, one of our co-authors was from Brazil. And he said he, he's, he's seen this in his lifetime that a lot of often unclassified uh, fish comes in. Um, it's marketed as white fish. If the species is not uh, disclosed and it's used in, say, fried fish or ceviche, people don't know what it is that they're eating. It's sort of the ocean's mystery meat, if you will. It's the same for fish and chips. In England, there was a study that showed that about 90% of the outlets that uh, sold fish and chips in 2018 uh, were selling endangered sharks um, as wow. part of the product or exclusively. So um, it's not just uh, a problem of any one country. It's it's quite pervasive. Although I will say I'm not aware of um, shark meat being sold in, in Canada, sort of in this uh, undercover way. Now, you mentioned that there are some success stories. Where are sharks protected? Yeah, so that's what uh, also makes us very hopeful that we see that this problem is very solvable. And there's a number of countries, often small, low-income island nations, that have taken decisive steps to protecting sharks in their water. 
for a variety of reasons. So Bahamas, for example, has a very lucrative ecotourism, dive tourism industry, and people are very keen to see uh, large hammerhead sharks and tiger sharks and others uh, underwater. And so they're protecting sharks in the waters entirely. And when you look at shark abundance across the Caribbean region, you see that the Bahamas are really the positive outlier here. Another example would be the Maldives for similar reasons, or French Polynesia, which actually have a traditional belief that sharks are sacred, and so they, they wouldn't touch a shark. And I've done diving in, in those places, and you can tell right away that sharks are doing well, because you're seeing lots of them, and, um, and it's amazing. So what would it take for more success stories like these? Well, uh, there's a number of options, actually. One is uh, essentially where you fish. There's places that have a lot of sharks in them, and it's a good idea to protect those places, particularly if the sharks are very vulnerable, say, shark nurseries, where sharks go to have their young. Which brings me to the second point, uh, how you fish. Um, There is forms of fishing, methods of fishing that catch a lot of sharks, gillnets, trawls, for example, long lines to some extent. So um, changing our fishing practices, where we fish, how we fish, really is is a good solution. And then um, some countries actually do have successful shark fisheries that are extremely tightly regulated. So you have very tightly controlled limits on how much you fish. Mm. So in the end, what are you hoping comes out of this study of shark mortality? Well, I I hope it's a bit of a wake-up call, uh, particularly for environmental NGOs that have focused largely on shark uh, finning to really shift gears and sort of reinvent shark conservation 2.0, you could say, uh, and focusing on shark mortality. And again, not that that's not already happening, but we need more of that in in more places. Uh, We have people working in Europe um, all around the world. There are these efforts, and sharks now have fortunately, really moved out of the sort of Jaws-type vilified niche um, into a place where people really see them as what they are, amazing, important, and critically endangered wildlife that we need to keep on this planet to keep this planet running. Dr. Worm, thank you so much for your time. Good to talk to you, Bob. Dr. Boris Worm is a marine biologist at Dalhousie University. dog owners have left the television on to entertain their pets at one point or another. In fact, there are entire YouTube channels dedicated to our canine couch potatoes, but it's not clear whether or not our pets are paying attention to what's on the screen. And for veterinary ophthalmologist Freya Mowat, that sparked her curiosity and a scientific investigation about what dogs actually like to watch on TV. Dr. Mowat is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share with you a little bit of our knowledge about dogs and, and TV and vision. Well, what got you interested in learning why dogs or what dogs like to watch on TV? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, it it was sparked from some quite epic failures in the lab to test dogs' vision. Um, We, as clinical veterinary ophthalmologists or veterinarians, 
the way we test vision is so much lower fidelity than the way we do in people. So you go to your optometrist and you read the eye chart where there's lots of letters and they can tell you how good quality your vision is and correct your vision if need be. In dogs, what we do is we wave our hands at their faces and we see if they blink or move their head away. And so it's sort of embarrassingly crude in terms of our ability to detect fine quality or poor quality vision. And so as a veterinary ophthalmologist who's interested in research in vision, the ability for us to actually detect subtleties in vision changes over time is really important. Yeah. So basically waving your hand in front of a dog's face is just saying, can you see or are you blind? Yeah. Take me through your study. How did you figure out what it is that dogs like to watch? Yeah, so um, we we went down the road of sort of thinking laterally and we tried some pediatric methods. So human babies get tested for vision ability and those methods don't work with dogs because they get bored. So we then figured out, well, if dogs get bored by these things, what are they interested in? And of course, we can't have a, a real animal in the laboratory testing vision with us. So we had to figure what was, was good in the virtual space. So we um, asked dog owners, it was a pandemic developed project because they'd spent time at home with their dogs, observing their dog's behavior. And we put it out on social media to ask dog owners to tell us more about their dog's TV watching behavior. Now, if you're just doing surveys of people watching their dogs, I mean, uh, how do you know that the dogs aren't just attracted by the, the sound of the television or they just want to be sitting with their owners while the owner's watching TV? For sure. Those are two limitations we did state during the study um, kind of discussion. Um, But we did try to address that a little bit during the study as well. We asked the owners, does your dog get attracted to something that's moving on a screen versus a noise? And about um, two thirds of people said that their dogs were reactive to sound or movement. And a lot of people said both, of course. Um, But we actually asked a second question, which says, does your dog watch the TV when it's on mute? And actually over half of people said yes. Yes. So there is at least uh, a proportion of dogs that are attracted by the movement that is occurring on the screen rather than just the sound. Now, did people report that their dogs had uh, favorite programs? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Absolutely. We had a couple of ways of asking this. The first thing we, we did in a standardized way is we asked the dog owners to tell us about broad content categories. So we didn't ask about specific programs, but we said, does your dog pay attention to animals on the screen? And I will say 95% of dog owners said yes in that space. So uh, dogs like animals a lot. And then within that category, we had some subcategories. So if they said yes to that one question, they then moved on to some subcategories. And we asked about specific types of animal. And again, 95% of animal watchers like watching dogs. So dogs are very popular with dogs, which makes sense because we as humans like to watch humans. So it sort of (laughs) makes sense. And then also, we also gave the owners option to give us some commentary. And, um, you know, we had some really funny responses. Uh, uh, Five dogs like the Lion King, um, which I think was probably the (laughs) highest popularity. Um, You know, there's some interesting uh, uh, at least perceived preferences with dogs. (laughs) Now, I also understand that you made different videos to show the dogs. What what kind of subjects did you show them? So we picked one video of a dog and then we had a little hopping bird on a a grassy sort of lawn. And then we had um, some traffic moving along a street. And then the last one we had was a panther walking across a kind of swampy ground. And we picked those really to try and maintain some level of diversity, but focusing on animals, thinking that we would preempt what we did find, which is that dogs would like to watch animals. Um, ah. So it's still the dogs like watching other dogs and, and other animals. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, yep. 
Now, what about squirrels? That's a wonderful question. Squirrels were included <laughs> in our subcategory. And if I remember rightly, there were about 17 animal categories within that broad animal category. And if I remember rightly, squirrels were about halfway down, which I was quite surprised about, maybe a little bit, maybe a third of the way down. They certainly wow. weren't in the top five, which I was quite surprised about. It's it's dogs. And then I think very closely between each other are horses, livestock, wild animals. Those are the top ones and then squirrels come in the next little group down so i don't know if the squirrels on the tv don't provide the same sensory experience as the squirrels in the real world i don't know but they didn't grade as high as i thought they would do yeah because in the wild or well you take a dog for a walk if a squirrel shows up they go crazy (laughs) now what about humans That's also a great question. And again, it was a a fun surprise to see that humans also didn't rank highly. They were actually the ninth most popular animal. So they were right around halfway down. Um, And and I I truly, again, I think our dogs love us in real life. But I think that there's a a whole array of sensory experiences they get from us feedback wise that does not occur in the virtual space. So So what's your next step in trying to develop this uh, into a vision test for dogs? I mean, I'd love to say we're sort of ready to roll and it's coming soon. (laughs) Watch this space. Um, We are a long way off anything useful. And I think, you know, what I'd love is that we could develop a tool that replaces that hand waving test that we use in veterinary medicine. I can't promise that that will happen. Well, there's enough of a debate about this with humans. But do you think watching television is good for dogs? I've had that question um, asked to me before, and it was something I didn't really think about because our dogs engage with television in a totally different way to us. We sit down on the couch and watch, you know, hour long, more than hour long things. There are dogs out there that do that, which is very interesting to me that there are dogs that owners said will watch a whole movie but the most common response for the amount of time a dog watches in any one sitting is actually about one to five minutes i think the other thing to say is that dogs don't typically lay on the couch and watch tv they're like watching the tv and trying to interact with it so they're physically moving around they're typically tracking they're running they're barking so maybe some of those aren't necessarily desirable behaviors but they're probably healthy in terms of physical health rather than us loafing on the couch. (laughs) Be interesting if you teach them how to use the remote control, then you can find (laughs) out what they really like to watch. (laughs) Yes. Dr. Moat, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Freya Moat is an assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Veterinary Medicine. Just outside of Sussex, New Brunswick, in the small community of Norton, there's what looks like an ordinary rocky outcrop. Except there's nothing ordinary about it. It's on the edge of the Stonehammer UNESCO Geopark in the southern part of the province, where you can find rocks up to a billion years old. But at this quarry in Norton, researchers have found a time capsule of a catastrophic event hundreds of millions of years ago. In a new discovery, they have unearthed a tree, a tree unlike anything previously known to science, an evolutionary experiment that's giving us a glimpse of a time long gone by. Quirks and Quarks producer Sonia Biting spoke with the two scientists from the New Brunswick Museum who discovered it. 
Here's Matt Stimson, the Assistant Curator of Paleontology and Research Associate Olivia King. In the Norton area, 350 million years ago, this was a lake. Freshwater lake with no oxygen at the bottom, fish swimming at the top. The area was swampy on land on the shorelines of the lake and forested. We would have been located a lot closer to the equator, so very tropical. We would have had animals starting to make their way onto land, things that have backbones starting to come out of the water. They're in places like Blue Beach, Nova Scotia, we have bones of these animals. And they kind of give us a sense that these vertebrates and, and these salamander-like creatures would have been sizable like an iguana, give or take, at, the, at a larger scale. But at the time, you have insects really dominating. Oxygen would have been really high. And you have basically these massive dragonflies flying around as well. In the waters, you would have had fish but you also would have had these large lobster-like creatures floating around. So it would have been a very different environment than something you'd see today. We know that there's a lot of plants in the rocks from this time period from 350 million years ago in the Norton, New Brunswick area. We were out in the field looking for, for stuff to tell us something about the paleo environment, like what's going on. We started finding some common stuff. So burrows and some common plants from this time period. In particular, we noticed a whole bunch of trees that had the same orientation. They're all going the same way, and we were pondering, are they part of a log jam, or, or what, what's the circumstances as to why all of these tree stems were going the same direction? And then we found this bigger boulder, and we realized there's something kind of weird about it. But we actually ignored it at the beginning, and then decided at the end of the day, we're going to dig this thing out. So we started digging at it. We had a branch exposed and then parts of the trunk were exposed. And then we realized it's a trunk. And then we realized there's more. <laughs> and so it was kind of very slowly uncovering layer by layer and then realizing there's this massive fossil basically in this, this massive tree. Once we dug this thing out, we realized the branches were much bigger and, and larger than anything else we had seen in the fossil record. And we immediately started calling colleagues of ours in the States and over in Europe saying, have you seen this before? We knew it was unique, at least unique to New Brunswick, unique to Atlantic Canada, but we didn't realize how unique it was more globally to the whole fossil record. The tree itself, that for the whole block, it's about a meter and a half in width, and the length of the branches attached go about a meter and a half to a meter 0.75 on either side. So it's a big rock and the tree fans over the whole thing. It's complete, it's intact, the branches, the leaves are still attached. That's extremely rare in the fossil record. Extremely rare. As plants die, the leaves fall off, the branches fall off, the stems break up, and that's how we find them fossilized. And we have to start connecting the pieces to understand what these plants look like. And it's a lot of work, and we, sometimes we just don't know. But in this case, it's all put together. There's only about three localities on the planet that give us any real window into what this time period was like. We really didn't understand the full story till about a year ago. This earthquake-induced preservation mode, that, that is new. We know that there's faults in the area, just like the San Andreas Fault in California. If you've got faults, you have earthquakes. 
you have an earthquake, you have the potential to damage things. Now, there's no buildings like today that could topple over, but there are trees. And in this case, the side of the lake let go. mass wasting or a landslide event and all of this mud and soil and ground and the trees that were growing in them ended up in the lakes as a result of this earthquake so you have this very short catastrophic event bringing all these plants into the lake and then being buried very rapidly by the sediments that were falling and being dumped into the lake all at once A colleague of mine, in the first year that we found it, when I sent it off to him, he said, we haven't seen this before. And I said, okay, well, how rare are we talking? And he used the example, well, it would be like finding a cactus in the middle of your Canadian boreal forest. One thing we've often compared it to is the trees from the Lorax and Dr. Seuss. It's those pom-poms at the top with that slightly slender build to it. It's very odd and whimsical. It looks like a bottle brush. <laughs> so you have this spiral that your branches are coming off of the main trunk system, and the spiral is incredibly dense with all of these branches coming off and extending very far out. So it's about 250 branches in a span of maybe half a meter to a meter, it is incredibly dense. So this is probably occupying the mid canopy as it's niche in the ecology, right? So it's trying to capture as much light as possible. What makes it really cool is that this spiral and this density, we don't see it in today's plants. It's not something that is a typical type of distribution. And we don't see it in plants before this time, and we don't see it in plants after this time. If you look at uh, even a lot of modern-day plants and a lot of conifers, when you look at the bark and you look at the texture of the wood, they sort of spiral as they're growing over time, as they're reaching up towards the sky. So a lot of trees and, and ferns at this time have that spiral pattern, but what we don't see is the density of branches along the stem and how far out they go, and how tall this tree is. It's not some of the tallest trees, but it's also not the small shrubbery either. So as these forests probably developed, and we started getting into what you think of a typical woody plant, further or much younger in time, it probably just didn't survive. There wasn't enough light to actually have this thing move past where it is in time. In Atlantic Canada, we also have what's known as the Windsor Sea Invasion shortly after. So these trees and these ecosystems were very low-lying in the bottoms of the valleys in these swampy low-lying areas 350 million years ago. But by 340 million years ago, moving forward in time, sea level rose due to glaciers melting at the poles. These low-lying areas were then flooded out and inundated with saltwater seas forcing a lot of plants to migrate back with the coastlines. So it's possible they were very adapted for these swampy conditions, but they didn't survive very well once sea levels rose. It's kind of nice that this is a, a fossil that's going to really kind of kickstart a lot of 
a better understanding of this time period in New Brunswick and how that fits into the rest of the world. That was Matt Stimson and Olivia King from the New Brunswick Museum in St. John. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, an ivory tool turns out to be great at giving Stone Age people enough rope. After a lot of testing, a lot of filming, a lot of checking different raw materials, it in fact works very, very well for making rope. And you can make about five meters of rope in about 10 minutes after you get used to using the system. The complex interactions between species in an ecosystem are often hard to untangle for biologists. So unfortunately, it's often only when these systems are disrupted and compromised that we discover the mutual dependencies that make them work. Like a recent example in Kenya, when an invasive ant moved in and displaced a native species that inhabited trees. This tiny change disrupted the lives of elephants, lions, zebra, buffalo, and likely a host of other species. Adam Ford was one of the researchers who studied this transition. He's a wildlife ecologist at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan campus. Dr. Ford, welcome to our show. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you. First of all, tell me about the native ant species in Kenya. How did they function as part of the ecosystem? There's a fascinating relationship between uh, acacia. Uh, whist- it's a whistling thorn uh, species, and that means it has these swollen thorns that provide a house for these tiny native ants to live in, and they also produce extra floral nectaries, so sugar for the ant, so a- a something to eat and a place to live. And in return, the ants provide protection from catastrophic herbivory. What do you mean by that? Well, if you were to shake a tree or bump into it, as I've often done, the ants will come swarming out and will bite and be annoying and will deter herbivory. And this is something that is uh, quite a profound relationship. These ants are able to protect these trees from elephants and from giraffes and other species. So it's quite an important uh, mutualism. Oh, I see. (laughs) The ants stand guard for the tree in a way. (laughs) Correct. So what happened then when a new ant species entered the picture? So big-headed ants are an invasive species across the world. Their origins are unknown, but they are probably coming uh, to different landscapes from people. And these ants came a, a few decades ago to parts of central Kenya in an area called Lycipia. And researchers noticed that uh, there are some changes in tree cover that were associated with the presence of these big-headed ants. And we want to understand what is that connection between elephants, these invasive ants, and the native ants that they were there before. Now, you say these ants came came by people? How, How do people transport ants? It could be in firewood, it could be on their clothing, it could be in their vehicles. Uh, this is part of the invasive species problem that's uh, that's affecting biodiversity across planet Earth. So when these big-headed ants came in, how did they take over from the native ones? 
the invasive ants eat the brood, eat the babies of these native ants, and that renders the tree defenseless against elephants. So we first had to figure out, you know, how bad is it? What's the rate of change? So we set up an experiment where we had fenced exclosures to keep elephants out on both sides of the invasion front. So areas that were invaded by these ants and areas that were free of, of invasive ants. And we found a threefold increase in tree cover in areas that allowed elephants and had the presence of these invasive ants. In areas where we excluded elephants with basically 6,000, 7,000 volt fencing, there was no change in, in tree cover. And there's also no change in tree cover in areas that were not invaded by ants. So that tells us that these native ants are really good at protecting trees from herbivory and that in the absence of, uh, of that protection over just a three year period, we're gonna see changes in tree cover. And in fact, across this whole landscape, we're losing about 650 hectares of native tree cover each year. Okay, so <laughs> take me through then the whole trickle-down effect of these ants occupying these trees besides just what the elephants are doing. Right, so the next question for any ecologist is, so what, right? What happens next? And that's what we discovered is uh, with the change in tree cover, we're seeing a, a sort of reverberating or trickling effect through the whole food web. So lions, one of the most iconic wildlife species in East Africa, uses tree cover to ambush and, and hide from their, their prey. And one of their most important prey are plain zebra. It makes up almost 70 or 80% of the diet of lions prior to the invasion of uh, these big-headed ants. Uh, with the loss of tree cover, lions are less successful in hunting zebras. About three times fewer zebra are getting killed by lions in areas that were invaded by the big-headed ant. And as a result, lions have had to, to basically change their diet to something else that they can attack and kill in areas where tree cover is less important. Okay, so this is good news for the zebra, bad news for the lions. What did the lions do in response? Yeah, the lions are now eating buffalo, which is a very large animal. It's much more dangerous than the zebra. Fortunately, we're not seeing any changes in, in lion population numbers or zebra population numbers or buffalo population. So right now, the, the sort of resiliency or the diversity of the food web has allowed it to be resilient to the pressures from the big-headed ant. That's a good news story. The world has definitely gotten safer for zebras. So, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe zebras don't mind this invasive uh, ant coming on board. Um, and I think the buffalo would probably have an opinion about it as well. That would be less favorable. <laughs> But it's still more dangerous for the lions, but not enough to threaten them entirely. Yeah, for the time being, things have stabilized, but it, yeah, it could change in the future. Hopefully not. Boy, what went through your mind when you realized that an ant can affect a tree, can affect elephants, can affect lions, zebra, and what about, like, there's this whole trickle-down effect? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the power of these tiny creatures to really shape the world before us is something to uh, to celebrate with nature. I mean, it's too bad it's an invasive species, but it's also a story of this native ant. And I think it's also a testament to the integrity of that landscape, um, that people are ranching, they're making their livelihoods in this area, and that they're allowing these large mammals to, you know, co-occur on their properties alongside people. And because of that land management practice, um, the food web has been, you know, relatively resilient to the pressures from this catastrophic invader. Now, besides the effect on the big animals, what are some of the broader implications for the ecosystem in Kenya? You know, that's sort of where our next studies are going to land us. But you can think of the importance of tree cover for things like nutrient cycling, carbon storage, water retention. Uh, it's it's definitely you know, uh, a significant effect to that whole landscape. This uh, whistling thorn acacia 
uh, occupies thousands of square kilometers in East Africa. And uh, if this invasive ant continues to spread as it's doing, we're going to see uh, major changes across a large area. Birds, lizards, small mammals, um, other insects are all going to be affected. Now, is there anything that can be done to get rid of this in invasive species of ant? In places where they've invaded, people have had some success with, uh, you know, with chemical um, approaches. So I, I just don't think that that's necessarily where we want to go because, you know, by through chemical eradication, we're going to lose other species as well. So I think it's really a, a coexisting uh, question. How do we live alongside this invasive species rather than how do we get rid of it? So if this ant was brought into Kenya by people, what advice do you have for tourists who want to visit these areas? Yeah, great question. I think we just have to be very careful and adhere to guidelines around um, biocontamination, you know, making sure we're not tracking in uh, soil and, and other debris from different parts of the world when we visit uh, different ecosystems. And we're seeing that in, you know, here in the Okanagan where they're concerned about invasive mussels as well. I mean, this is a common problem for invasive species across the world. Dr. Ford, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Bob. Adam Ford is a wildlife ecologist at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Humans today inhabit practically every corner of the globe. Of course, it wasn't always like that. A few tens of thousands of years ago, our ancestors were just one species of hominid, confined mostly to Africa, while our cousins like Neanderthals and Homo erectus had carved out their own territory in Europe and Asia. But then, in a relatively short time, Homo sapiens expanded out from their African home and began to spread through Eurasia. Probably not coincidentally, the other species of humans disappeared following our great migration. We know that it happened, but there's much we don't know about how and why it happened. Well, some of that story became a little clearer this week as researchers announced a new study of fragmentary bones uncovered in a cave in northern Germany dating back 46,000 years. They turned out to be some of the earliest evidence of Homo sapiens this far west and north. And the find is rewriting what we thought we knew about the history of humans in Europe and how Homo sapiens took over the world. Jean-Jacques Goublin is the Director Emeritus of the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Dr. Goublin, welcome to our program. Good morning. First of all, tell me about this cave. What made you want to excavate there? Well, this cave uh, has been known for a long time for uh, yielding um, stone artifacts from uh, the very period of uh, replacement of Neanderthals by modern Homo sapiens. It was, it was um, a difficult excavation because, uh, I mean, the archaeological layers are covered by uh, tons of rocks, but somehow this is why the site was preserved. So what were you expecting to find there? As you said, we, we know the replacement of uh, archaic humans like Neanderthals by uh, modern Homo sapiens occurred. We know what existed before and after, but we, we want to know how this happened. And uh, in Europe, we have um, a series of um, stone toolkits from this time period uh, that we call transitional um, industries. And the reality is, is that we don't really know who made them. 
And this is why we are so interested in, in this side, because it documents this period. And this is one of these transitional assemblages that people for a long time uh, believe to, have believed to be um, produced by the late Neanderthals. Ah, so there was a question of whether they were Neanderthals or humans. Was that what you were trying to solve? Yeah, it was something we really wanted to clarify. And actually, we, <laughs> we are not disappointed because we did find uh, human remains at a time and in a place where uh, they were not expected somehow. Well, take me through that. You say that the teams have found tools beforehand. Uh, what evidence did you find that they were humans, either humans or Neanderthals? As, as you, you may know, archaeological sites uh, of this time period, they, they yield stone artifacts, uh, but also a bunch of uh, bone fragments. And actually, the, the, the bulk of the bone remains coming from archaeological sites are, are impossible to identify because they are just fragments. We know it's bones, but uh, we don't know from what kind of creature. And uh, recently, there is a technique that developed that we call zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry. So uh, it's a bit uh, barbaric uh, expression. But um, basically, it means that uh, by using molecular techniques, working on the collagen that's in, inside the bones, we can determine to what specific species each uh, fragment uh, belongs. And so this way we can treat hundreds, even thousands of fragments. And um, doing all this work, we were able to identify a dozen of, of these uh, human remains. So they are not very spectacular. They are, they are tiny fragments. But... For us, it's very precious because as soon as they are uh, found, we can, first of all, date them directly using the radiocarbon technique. And we can also extract DNA. And, and of course, this, this is how we get the answers to our questions. So when you looked at the DNA of these bones, what did it tell you about the people who were living in this cave? We are dealing with small groups of humans, probably just a couple of hundreds of people for all this part of Europe. And they, they are part of these very early peoplings uh, of, of Europe by uh, modern Homo sapiens. Looks like there are small groups moving out of uh, the, the close Asia or Near East and making their way very far west into the domain of the Neanderthals. And, and this is, is very new because... Somehow people expected that as modern humans uh, come out of Africa, you know, they are, they are tropical creatures. And so we're imagining them coming into uh, Europe uh, during a, a warmer climatic phase. And it's exactly the opposite what we, we have found. So what does it suggest to you that that modern humans were coming into this cave so early into Europe, which had previously only been people by Neanderthals? Well, it looks like, um, first of all, they, they, they are not driven by climate, obviously. Uh, they are dry, driven by other um, uh, reasons, probably sort of internal uh, causalities, demography, something like that, that somehow pushed them out of uh, the Near East. Um, second, it shows that they have the capability, technically, they have the capability to adapt to these rather harsh environments. Well, I know you're Canadians, for you, it's, uh, it's like the normal life, but I mean, these guys were living in a climate of uh, 
uh, with a, a tundra uh, landscape, uh, no trees, a temperature that was 12 degrees lower than today during winter. Um, so a difficult uh, environment. So they had this capability, and this is quite unexpected. And lastly, it looked like they settled somehow at the periphery of the Neanderthal world, probably in, in places that were more difficult for Neanderthals. Uh, and uh, and they, they survived there. They lived there for several millennia before replacing uh, Neanderthals further south. So how does this change our understanding of what was happening at this time in human history and how the Homo sapiens took over from the Neanderthals? There was this picture that um, our, our species came into Western Eurasia in the, in the form of a sort of a wave of humans uh, moving west and replacing quickly the Neanderthals. What we see now is that there is a very long coexistence of, of the two groups, and we have Neanderthals that are directly dated uh, around 41, 42,000 in Belgium, in France. They are not far at all. They are neighbors. And so what we see is not a wave of humans moving. It's more like small groups making their way into these new territories very far west. And... Um, Maybe they disappeared. Maybe they were simply absorbed by later uh, waves of modern humans because there is going to be a final uh, episode to this story that's going to occur about 40,000 years ago. And this is when what we call origination uh, culture is going to appear in Europe. And, and this is going to be the wave. And this wave is going to basically replace the Neanderthals and these people from uh, all these very, very early sites. Dr. Hublin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Jean-Jacques Hublin is the Director Emeritus of the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Now, we call these ancient humans Stone Age people, but that really misrepresents them. Their Stone Age because the archaeological remains we found are largely their stone tools more rarely a bit of ivory or antler. But to survive as nomadic hunter-gatherers in Ice Age Europe, they had to be masters of a much richer material culture than just stone. In reality, their tools and possessions would have been made of a whole range of other materials that wouldn't have survived for us to find. Animal skin and sinew for containers, clothing, and shelter. Wood tools in many different forms, and likely plant material used to make a range of things. For example, what about rope? It's amazingly useful stuff. Imagine going camping without it. So it's reasonable to think people have made it far, far back in history. Well, now a find in another cave in Germany suggests that these people were using rope at least 35,000 years ago. Archaeologists didn't find the rope. They found the tool they're convinced was used to make it. Nicholas Conard, an archaeologist from the University of Tübingen in Germany, was part of the team. Professor Conard, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Uh, nice to hear from you, Bob. First of all, tell me about the tool you have identified. What's it look like? Well, it's about uh, 21 centimeters long, 
three and a half wide, about a centimeter and a half thick. It's made from ivory. It's very highly polished and a very precisely worked object with four holes. The holes are of two of them nine millimeters, two of seven millimeters. And the interesting thing about them is inside the holes, there are these beautifully spiraled grooves that look kind of like, let's say, the rifling of a gun, right? They're spinning and, um, well, at least that's what I was thinking about when I saw them. And where was it found? It was found at a site called Holofels. Touching on the dating, it's a cave. And you have to imagine cave bears use the site very intensely. People use the site very intensely. Cave bears hibernate in the in the caves. They dig holes. The people dig holes. There's some mixing. just, uh, And that's why we can't say exactly whether it's 39,000, 38,000, 37,000. For the publication, I just said it is definitely 100% older than 35,000 for sure. Now, when you found this tool, why did you think it was used for rope making? Well, first of all, it was a pretty big deal to find the tool. Ivory artifacts are usually broken in place. Sometimes pieces are missing. Actually, pretty often things are missing, and this is a very complete one. And once it was washed and especially put together, it was very clear that it was made with extreme precision. Some people have considered similar objects to be artworks or symbols of power. And because of the spiral grooves, I was pretty convinced that it had something to do with putting something through the holes. And the spiral suggested that there'd be some kind of alignment and it would somehow come out different on the other end. Talking to my colleague, Verla Rotz, we pretty quickly came up with the idea, well, maybe it's for putting plant fibers through it. And we pretty quickly thought, well, maybe you could use it to make rope. And that got everything going. Now, do you have any evidence that people 35,000 years ago used rope? Well, I mean, first of all, there's evidence in the sense that it's hard to imagine life without string, rope, twine, because how else are you going to tie anything? Of course, you could cut strips of leather. You can do different things. You can... But generally speaking, for more sophisticated activities, you need something that's reliable, sturdy. And since in the Ice Age, if your rope or twine doesn't work for you, you might have a very, very big problem. They need reliable technology, just like we need reliable technology. And so we thought such things must exist. There are also interesting cases of female figurines, especially, that have depictions of uh, twine or sometimes fairly thick rope. A famous example would be from uh, the Gredian period about 25,000 years ago at a site of Kostyanki, Russia. So they're actually depictions of rope. Okay. So you've got this tool. It's a long piece of ivory. It's got four holes in it. Each hole has a spiral pattern to it. How did you go about figuring out how it was used to make rope? Well, I called the best experimental archaeologist there is, and that's Verla Rotz in Belgium. And she was pretty, she loves this sort of stuff, right? I find cool stuff. She figures out or tests what it's used for. <laughs> and she came to Tubi and we looked at the piece after it had been reconstructed. And we both agreed something is going on with these holes and something is being fed through the holes. And we were thinking you pull it and feed the fibers through, and maybe you can make rope. She made replicas of different materials from bone, from wood, from metal, just to have ways they could test it because it's not easy to find mammoth ivory. And after a lot of testing, a lot of filming, a lot of checking different raw materials, she was able to determine that 
it in fact works very, very well for making rope. And you can make about five meters of rope in about 10 minutes after you get used to using the system. Wow. What she said worked particularly well are cattail leaves. You know, cattails have long leaves and you feed them in through the hole, twisting them. And as three or four people are feeding in the cattails and twisting them, the other person holds them from the other end of the tool, pushes the tool forward, ties off the rope end, and just keeps going and going and going as long as you want. And the individual, let's say, pieces more like twine then are wrapped together to make the rope. And anytime you look at most traditional ropes, you know, if you're uh, now we have nylon rope with sort of webbing structures, but traditional rope, as I think everyone knows, is a combination of string or twine into bigger bunches. It, and that's exactly what we get using this technique. So each hole, you put fibers through it and they twist into a kind of a twine as you pull them through. But there are four holes, so you yeah. end up with four pieces of twine, and then you twist that into the spiral shape of a rope after it's gone through the four holes? It happens automatically. It, it's, it's automatically rope. It twists together automatically. Wow. Now, when you tested this out, how well did it work? Uh, it, well, it worked great, but uh, we knew how to do it when I did it. I think the bear that was doing a lot of trial and error with different <laughs> different fibers, you know, inner bark of uh, many kinds of trees and different things could be used. But the actual, most of the actual studies we did were with cattail because it works really well and it's easy to get. So how strong is cattail rope? Super strong. Really? We were not able to find a way to break the rope. <laughs> Well, you use it to tie up your pet mammoth. Yeah, exactly. It would it'd be fine for that. That wouldn't be a problem. But humans could not break it. Well, what does this tell you about the people who made this tool and, and made the rope with it? Well, what I would say is we already know these people are just as smart as we are, right? They had art, musical instruments, all sorts of sophisticated technology. These are very smart people. There were geniuses back then, just like there are now. And they invented all sorts of great things to get through daily life. And I tend to think that in general, life in the Ice Age was pretty good, right? Nobody was bugging you all the time. You know, you're with your people doing your thing. You got your food, you slept, you did whatever you wanted to do. And sure, there were lean times. There were times that were less lean. But I actually, when I think of my daily life, I sometimes wish I were back there, you know? <laughs> it, it's interesting. When we think about significant technologies that were invented over time, a lot of people talk about the wheel. But rope rope really lasted a long time. I mean, I'm a sailor, and, and you can't sail without rope on a boat, and it took people across oceans. Yeah, exactly. That I, I agree with you completely. The Yeah, the wheel comes in pretty late. There are a lot of places, as you know, where nobody ever used wheels, hmm. uh, such as Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Connor, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure, Bob. Have a great day, and thanks for the invite. Uh, maybe see you down the road. Nicholas Connard is an archaeologist from the University of Tübingen in Germany. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.